I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. An important note before you listen to this podcast. This series chronicles real events as they occurred over the past 40 plus years. During the course of multiple investigations, many people were considered suspects or initially appeared suspicious to authorities. As you listen to this show, we ask that you please reserve judgment until you've listened to the entire season and that you consider the lives that were affected by these events. This podcast includes accounts of violence and sexual assault, so listener discretion is strongly advised. I was about 26, 27 years old when this happened and was just floating and looking for something to do. And a bunch of old buds said, hey, let's let's get this thing together and do a big reefer thing. And uh, we want you to be our driver. And I said, okay, let's do it because I wasn't doing anything. Let's go down to Mexico, score, come back and sell it in New York. We were driving a brand new Oldsmobile. It looked really unassuming and very undrug looking. <laughs> we looked like rich kids coming up from Mexico. We had a, a giant golf bag, big, big, as big as you could get. And we stuffed a hundred pounds of pot down in the bottom of that bag. We weren't hiding it. It was right on top of everything in front of everybody and they never even looked at it. In New York City, the people who we were supposed to do our deal with were unavailable. You can't just sit there with 100 pounds of pot in your car. So we turned around, came back to New Orleans, and I had this guy's phone number. And I said, let's just give them a call and see what happens. And as soon as he answered, he went, oh, yeah, come on down. We can take care of that. It was his exact words. And then he said, I'll meet you on the other side of the bridge. They were building a log cabin on some property out there. And uh, we just sat outside and talked about what we were going to do. And he went back to the house to get some drinks because it was a real hot day. And he came back with a pistol instead of drinks. The first shot missed my head because I heard it whiz by. 
Instantly, the second shot got me in the back. The next two rounds got John, throat and chest. Then he proceeds to beat my head in and stick me in the car, pour gasoline on me, and light it up. I was pretending to be dead so they wouldn't shoot me in the head. I was in the back seat. The gas was burning on top of the plastic. Just as I was reaching to open the back door, I heard a door shut and, it, and a vehicle take off. So I flipped the plastic off of me that was on fire and slid out the back door. Took a few steps and fell out unconscious. The next thing I know, the firemen were there. He broke my jaw, he broke my nose, and I had to have my right eye removed for a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds of pot. That's nothing. I mean, that's, that fucker was evil, period. The guy would, I mean, he would drop your mother in a heartbeat. I had to have the last rites twice when I was in the hospital. I came so close to death. I think about that all the time. It's almost too much for luck. You gotta have God with you. I'm sorry. Did you ever go back to uh, St. Tammany Parish? Or no, no, no. Shit, yeah. buddy. I'd be so paranoid. Oh, hell. Fuck, man. That was Dean Wisner a retired electrical technician from Austin, Texas. Back in the 70s, when that story took place, Dean was just a fun-loving hippie dabbling in marijuana trafficking. That is, until he was shot, beaten, and burned within an inch of his life in St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana. Back then, St. Tammany advertised itself as a safe haven from the crime and corruption of New Orleans, which sits on the other side of an enormous body of water called Lake Pontchartrain. That sense of safety is what drew thousands of people to St. Tammany in the 1960s and 70s, including a crusading young prosecutor named Margaret Kuhn. Margaret moved to St. Tammany in the late 70s, around the same time Dean Wisner was nearly killed. In fact, she would later ensure that one of Dean's attackers remained in prison after he filed an appeal. But as people like Dean understood, there was a darker side to St. Tammany, and that darkness would ultimately consume Margaret Kuhn. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South, a documentary podcast series from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Season one, who killed Margaret Kuhn? Episode one, Bo Shen. I don't know how to describe how I felt about Margaret. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. It was like, wow, Margaret, you're so cool. You drive a Jag, are a female lawyer. You're incredibly intelligent. We would go to her office. She would have gorgeous antiques, beautiful, expensive artwork. She had oriental rugs on the floor. She had her Afghan dog 
everything about her was elegant, intelligent, and she was perfect. That's Claire Urson. In the 1980s, she was Margaret's aerobics instructor at the local YMCA. Over the years, they became close friends. She always came to my class. I don't think she ever broke out in a sweat. How did you not sweat? Why do you look per? Her makeup was perfect. She had the most adorable figure. She was our idol. We wanted to grow up and be Margaret. The way she's describing Margaret is how just about everyone describes her. Beautiful, intelligent, stylish. It's how she was described to me when I first heard about her. It was 2019, and I was producing a Netflix documentary called The Pharmacist about the opioid epidemic in Louisiana. The story was based on an article I'd written for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, where I worked as a crime reporter. In the midst of filming, I got to know a DEA agent from St. Tammany who remembered the case from years ago. It sounded interesting, so I looked into it and reached out to some of Margaret's old friends and colleagues, people like Tom Mull, who worked with Margaret at the DA's office. Without engaging in hyperbole, she was an angel. She was sweet and smart and friendly and helpful and just one of the best people I've ever worked with. And as a trial attorney, she could be very aggressive when she needed to be, and she knew when that was necessary, and she would back off and become the lady that she was the rest of the time. So using those two variances in personality and temperaments, very effective in court. She was very good at that. The first time I met Margaret, I was in the St. Tammany Parish Courthouse. This is Lori Mull, Tom's wife, who was also a lawyer. Tom had just started work there, and he was introducing me to some of the people he worked with. And it would be impossible not to remember the first time you met Margaret. She was a great conversationalist. She had a wonderful sense of humor. And I thought, wow, this is somebody I'm just delighted to meet. And she's such an unusual creature to be a district attorney. I covered a lot of murders when I was at the Times-Picayune, and I learned that people tend to idealize murder victims. He'd give you the shirt off his back. I probably heard that dozens of times. But the way people described Margaret was different. It was excessive. She seemed too good to be true, almost mythical. So the next time I was in Louisiana, I started investigating the circumstances of her death. As an assistant district attorney, Margaret specialized in sex crimes and crimes against children. By all accounts, she was a true advocate for the defenseless and fearless in her prosecution of violent criminals. I swear, I think she believed in, in, in truth and justice and, and doing her part to give back to the community. I think she was that, that kind of person. She didn't do it for the money. I think she was pure. I think she did it put the bad guys behind the bars and protect the rest of us. The investigation into Margaret Kuhn's unsolved murder has been long, frustrating, and at times bewildering. But after 34 years, new information is coming to light. First, we need to take you back to the night Margaret was killed. In February of 1987, Margaret was living in an upscale gated community called Beauchene, French for beautiful oak. It was the most exclusive neighborhood in the parish. Set on a thousand forested acres, 
It had two golf courses, a tennis club, and a swimming pool, all centered around an old plantation house that was converted into a sales office. Oh, Boshin growing up at that time was the place to live. It was supposed to be the premier safe subdivision, raise your family there, play golf there, swim, play tennis, a complete family atmosphere where you didn't have to worry about, as they put it at one time, the riffraff. That's Trey Hoffman. Trey grew up in Boshan, and in the winter of 87, he was working in the golf cart barn at Boshan Country Club. The golf cart barn was a hive of activity. After rounding up the carts, Trey and his crew had to clean, park, and charge them, and make sure kids from the neighborhood didn't steal them, tasks that often kept them busy until 9 or 10 p.m. By and large, it was a steady and predictable job, with one exception the night of February 19th, 1987. That specific night, we were starting to bring carts in. We had them all lined out up front. We were cleaning them. And randomly, golf balls were starting to fly through the air. They were hitting the top of the roof. They were hitting the side of the barn. They were hitting everywhere. And the golf balls started coming from nowhere. I mean, we thought it was one of the other guys working with us. We couldn't figure out what was going on. And then we figured out somebody was literally trying to hurt us. The golf balls were coming at us so fast that we were running in and out of the golf bag storage closet, as well as trying to find a way to get to the front main club to tell the manager what was happening to us. It stopped for a few minutes, and then it started right back up. And nobody could figure out where the golf balls were coming from. According to Trey, nothing like this had ever happened before. This was new. We'd never had golf balls thrown at us because of the danger of it. If you were to get hit with one of those balls, it could definitely do damage. They were just coming too hard and too fast. After 20 minutes or so, the golf balls finally stopped falling and Trey and his team wandered out of the barn. That's when they learned that another Boshen employee, a guy named David Talley, had chased somebody into the woods. The manager at the time had told us, David has taken off chasing somebody. He said, look, we've called the guards, and we were told to get everything cleaned up and lock the place up. Most of the shifts, we only had like maybe three officers and a lieutenant. So we just generally patrol the parish and respond to any calls that were given out. That's Joe Freeman, a retired patrol deputy for the St. Tammany Sheriff's Department. Joe was called to Boshan on the night of the golf ball incident. Today, he owns a small business called Smokin' Joe's Mobile Home Parts in Mandeville, one of several small towns that make up St. Tammany Parish. That's where we met him. When I got out there, I came in at that gate, and I don't remember if there was a security guard at that gate or not that night. Usually, if you're in a patrol car, they just shoot you on through anyway. They don't, don't stop you and ask you no questions. Joe had patrolled Boshen before. He found it a pretty safe and uneventful place. Pretty much peaceful back in that little area back then. There wasn't a whole lot that went on in there. It was pretty secure. But as Joe approached the clubhouse, he saw what looked like a group of kids running away from the golf cart barn. So he jumped out of his unit and chased them. And when I go in there, I see somebody run across the top and come off of the top of the shed and they took off. Some went that way, some went that way. It just took off. Joe lost the kids, but contrary to what Trey Hoffman said, 
The guard told Joe that golf ball attacks were a normal event. He said, oh, it's just them kids. They do this all the time, da 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 You know, just giving me a rundown about how it operated. So Joe got back into his unit and resumed patrolling the area. I just patrolled inside of Boshin for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, something like that. And I didn't see anything. So I left and went on about my normal duties. And I came back out the same way I went in, and that would be right along that area where they found Margaret's body. Early the following morning, the St. Tammany Police Dispatch radioed another patrol deputy. She sent him to 640 North Beauchene Drive, where Joe Freeman had patrolled hours earlier, right across the street from the golf cart barn. The dispatch log reads, Woman lying on the ground, and the dog won't let anyone near her. Woman appears 107. 10-7 is police radio code for deceased. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners we got listeners no way amazing now available on the odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm so happy we're at odyssey now oh my god they're amazing the commercial break podcast you heard it here last a little after 6 a.m on the morning of friday february 20th a boshen resident pulled out of his driveway and saw something off the side of North Boshen Drive. It was a body with a large dog standing next to it. The resident ran back into his house and called Boshen security. Shortly after, a St. Tammany patrol deputy named Danny Jenkins was dispatched to the scene. I got a complaint that someone had been hit by a vehicle in Boshen. When I got there, there must have been 15 people standing around, just walking all around. Jenkins was the first cop at the scene, but firefighters were already there, and they'd done something unusual. There was a a dog there, an Afghan, and uh, the um, fire department had sprayed the dog to get get it away from the body, and uh, someone had tied it to a post nearby. They had sprayed the Afghan with a fire extinguisher, meaning they'd sprayed the crime scene with a fire extinguisher. It was obvious to me that the um, woman on the ground was dead, and I think she had been there for quite a while. When Jenkins approached the body, he realized she had not been hit by a car. Well, initially, I was looking, I was thinking that her clothing should have been torn and ragged from being struck by a vehicle and maybe sliding on the concrete or asphalt, but uh, I didn't see any of that. 
didn't seem to me that there was a robbery. That looked like she had been attacked from behind. I could see that there was a lot of blood on on the side, and uh, I couldn't tell if it was a gunshot wound or a stab wound. So I got all the people away. I told them that it was a a homicide, and if they would, the police moved to the other side of the street. Jenkins radioed the dispatcher and told them to alert the detectives and the crime lab. 126 Central, notify detective division, uh, subject 10-7, and uh, not exactly sure what the cause of death is. I knew that we needed uh, an investigator, and the crime scene needed to come out there and gather evidence. We had to get everybody on board. Call Detective Baroni and call Drennan. At 7.06 a.m., Detective Ed Baroni showed up. According to the initial crime scene report, Baroni observed a white female with blonde hair lying face down beside a stand of pine trees, about 25 feet off North Beauchene Drive. That put the body just 30 yards from the golf cart barn, where Trey Hoffman had come under fire the night before. The victim was wearing brown jogging shoes, red jogging pants, and a white short-sleeved t-shirt with what appeared to be a large blood stain on the back. While Baroni was observing the scene, a neighbor identified the victim as Margaret Kuhn. Baroni was stunned. He'd worked closely with Margaret on a number of cases over the years. Now, she was lying dead in a pile of leaves. 7-Eleven Central appears to be a homicide. Victim, Margaret Kuhn. 737 Central to 97 Beauchamp. 702 Central, have unit pickup coroner. 119 Central, coroner en route. Margaret Kuhn's body was transported across the lake to the Orleans Parish Coroner's Office while detectives continued their investigation. 714, 711, uh, 1097, victim residence. Once we finished up at the uh, crime scene, some of the investigators went to the, um, Margaret's condo and uh, had a look around on the inside for evidence of foul play. When they entered her condo, they found it undisturbed. The only real point of interest was in the living room. They did take two martini glasses for evidence. They also took a copy of The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, a book about man's refusal to acknowledge his own mortality, which Margaret had heavily underlined. Back outside, investigators found Margaret's neighbors, an older couple, standing in her driveway. They had uh, said they had seen her around 8.30 the night before, jogging with her dog. The couple explained that they had had dinner at the Beauchene Country Club the night before. When they got home, they saw Margaret walk out of her condo and start jogging toward North Beauchene Drive with her dog. The husband said he just happened to look at the clock. It read 8.30 p.m. And yet, a lot of people saw Margaret jogging with her dog that night. A country club valet said he saw her at 6.57. A babysitter leaving Beauchene said she saw her two and a half hours later at 9.25. What's even weirder is that multiple people said they saw her dog wandering alone by the tennis courts between 7.15 and 7.30. 
The sun set on St. Tammany that night at 5.51 p.m., so it was dark when all those sightings took place. The fact that Boshen didn't have any street lights back then made it even darker. Plus, people we spoke with said that Boshen was full of nighttime joggers, some of whom had dogs. So it's hard to know how reliable those sightings were. What we do know is that around 12 hours after she was reportedly last seen jogging through Boshen, Margaret's body was being examined at the Orleans Parish morgue. The body is that of a well-developed, slim, white female, appearing somewhat younger than the stated age of 41 years old. The body is cool to the touch and has not been previously refrigerated. Leaves and twigs the medical examiner determined Margaret had been stabbed in the heart with a seven-inch knife and with enough force to shatter one of her ribs. Final anatomic findings, single stab wound to the left posterior lateral chest perforation of the left lower lobe of the lung, and penetration of the left ventricle of the heart. Judging from the blood at the scene, he concluded that she had collapsed and then crawled maybe 15 to 25 feet before bleeding to death. It all happened within minutes. The autopsy found no defensive wounds and no signs of sexual assault. Whoever stabbed her had left up to $100,000 worth of jewelry on her body, untouched. The coroner listed the time of death as 8.30 p.m. Margaret Kuhn's murder occurred on Beauchene's most trafficked street, sandwiched between a driving range, tennis courts, condominiums, and the golf cart barn. And yet there were no eyewitnesses. Physical evidence was practically non-existent. The area around Margaret's body had been trampled by pedestrians and sprayed with a fire extinguisher. And that was it. Margaret Kuhn, a highly respected former assistant DA, had been stabbed in the back and killed in an exclusive subdivision in one of Louisiana's safest, most affluent parishes. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So I covered crime for the Times Picayune. This crime was discovered on a Friday. It was in February. I remember very vividly I was wearing a jacket. This is Drew Broach. Drew was my editor at the Times Picayune. But in 1987, he was a crime reporter for the paper's St. Tammany Bureau. My daily routine would be to get up in the morning and go to the sheriff's office in Slidell, where I lived, and sort of check the overnight reports to see if there was anything alarming. It was all police, fire, crime, hurricanes, flooding, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. On the morning of February 20th, Drew was grabbing his first cup of coffee when an editor at the Picayune paged him. So I found a payphone and called in, and they told me there had been a homicide in Beauchene. I think they actually told me it was Margaret Coon. So I turned around and, and drove the 20 or 30 miles up to Beauchene and um, bluffed my way past the guard. I mean, I pulled up and I, uh, I think I sort of waved my Times Picayune ID without him really being able to look at it, but I waved it as if, as if it looked official and I said, I'm going to the crime scene and he just waved me through. 
Drew knew he had a huge story on his hands. Single, white, female, blonde, very attractive, ex-prosecutor, professional lawyer, divorcee, stabbed to death in rich, exclusive subdivision. You know, that touches a lot of buttons there. This is unbelievable. A lot of us walk in the subdivision and we've never had any trouble like this before. It was total shock. Authorities are still investigating how the killer got past the guard post and why he murdered Margaret Kuhn. As Drew wrote and filed his story, Trey Hoffman, the young supervisor of the golf cart barn, spent the day processing what had happened the night before. I show up the next day and I hear that Margaret Kuhn had been stabbed to death not but, you know, 30 yards or less from where the edge of the cart barn was. I'm in shock. I'm in a little denial because you can't fathom that that happened roughly at the same time. Margaret's murder caused Trey to see the golf ball attack in a new light. He wondered, were the two somehow connected? And if so, holy shit. Wait a second. Normally, we would be looking for golf carts to make sure we had everything in. So if somebody's got us pinned in... Was us being assaulted with golf balls a diversion so that we wouldn't hear anything with what happened with Margaret Kuhn? So you keep thinking, wait a second, did I miss something? That afternoon, Trey got word that detectives from the sheriff's office wanted to interview him and members of the golf cart crew. He was nervous. All of us are nervous, but the, the head golf pros you know, and the assistant pros are telling us, just tell them the truth, tell them what happened, give them the best timeline you could. The interviews did not go well. First, they dismissed the intensity of the golf ball attack. And I'm like, you can't be serious. I said, if you'd been there, you couldn't even fathom how hard these golf balls were coming, how fast they were coming from every direction. Then they ruled out any connection between the attack and Margaret Kuhn's murder. And when they tell you that, oh, there's no correlation, you look back now and you think, okay, how did they know that? Trey felt like the detectives treated him more like a suspect than a potential witness. During the interviews, all of us who had spoken, you know, to the detectives felt a little challenged, like, hey, you know, what do you know? Um, who do you know? Or, you know, are you affiliated with anybody that we need to know about? We can't fathom that you guys are asking us of all people. We, you know, you should be looking for hardened criminals in our eyes because who's going to go after an assistant DA? I mean, you've got to have nerve or somebody would have had to have a lot of incentive to go do something like that. The interviews left Trey feeling rattled, but he knew that David Talley, the Beauchan employee, had chased someone the night before. It was confusing the night of, but the next day when you hear about that, you think, well, great, maybe he's you know, a good eyewitness to somebody that might be a suspect. Initially, Trey had assumed the guy David chased was involved in the golf ball incident, but now it seemed like the guy may have been involved in Margaret Kuhn's murder instead. The biggest detail we heard that really stood out for most of us was chasing him and then him turning around and, you know, brandishing a knife. According to David Talley, he hadn't just chased someone. Under questioning by detectives, David revealed that the man he was chasing had turned and confronted him with a knife. David backed off and the guy fled. As he did so, David said, the guy appeared to throw something into the woods with his left hand. He then jumped into a small pickup truck and drove away. David Talley died in 2006, so we weren't able to interview him. 
But news reports show that detectives took his account seriously, at least at first. That weekend, according to an article in the Associated Press, six deputies combed a patch of underbrush near the clubhouse with metal detectors, trying to find a knife. But they didn't find anything. Another problem with David Talley's story is that it contradicted Deputy Joe Freeman's memories of that evening. It also contradicted what Bo Shen security had told Joe when he arrived on the scene. He pretty much told me that the kids, that they do it all the time. That was, you know, they always coming over, messing with the golf carts and running around on top of the shed, on top of the golf cart shed. But he, I don't recall him ever telling me anything about a man, you know, an adult type man, you know. But Detective's biggest problem with Tally's story is that it conflicted with the timing of the murder. David said he chased a man out of Beauchamp around 7 o'clock. But remember, Margaret's official time of death, according to the autopsy report, wasn't until 8.30. As Chief Deputy Wallace Laird later told reporters, we don't think that man had anything to do with the murder since she was seen alive an hour and a half later. Laird went on to say, quote, There is no evidence that the man who ran away from the guard had a weapon of any kind, so we believe we have eliminated that connection. Drew Broach published his first story about the Coon murder in that Saturday's edition of the Times Pick. In his experience, the failure to immediately find a suspect did not bode well for the investigation. The chief of detectives at the time told me that, you know, on homicides in general, that if you don't have a suspect in the first six hours or so, um, you're in for a long haul because most of the homicides that they had in St. Tammy at that time were all pretty cut and dried, and it was fairly obvious in the first few hours, if not immediately, who had done it. I remember one where these these two dirtbags called a cab in slot L once. Then one of them had been concealing a shotgun, and he shoots through the seat and kills the cab driver, and they rob the cab driver. But one of the dirtbags left his own wallet in the cab. So, you know, they pull up, and the, the police pull up and to the crime scene, and there's a dead cab driver in somebody's wallet in the back seat. Well, the first thing you're going to go do is find the guy with the wallet. Well, they go to that guy's trailer and, you know, he's sitting there in bloodstained clothes and it's pretty obvious who did it. So the, the real whodunits uh, that remained mysteries were very few and far between, and this was one of them. By February 25th, six days after the murder, the sheriff's office had hit a wall. Wallace Laird told the St. Tammany News Banner, it's a real puzzler. We have no leads whatsoever. Right now, we got nothing. Sheriff Pat Canulet, sounding annoyed at the lack of progress, went a step further, telling a local reporter, everyone's a suspect. You're a suspect. The murder terrified people in Beauchene. The Homeowners Association raised a $10,000 reward for information leading to the killer's arrest. Residents accustomed to leaving their doors open started locking them again. Butch Batten, a reporter for the St. Tammany Farmer captured the prevailing mood in his weekly column, writing, This past week has proven, somewhat shockingly, that none of us are immune to crime, no matter how many fences are put up or how many security guards are placed between us and the outside world. 
I thought I'd gotten away from the crime in New Orleans, but there were some vicious crimes that happened in St. Tammany not long after we moved. They promote this image of small-town America, but it's not. If Margaret Kuhn is not safe, no one is safe. After that initial trip to St. Tammany, I continued to go back and report on the story over the next two years. And from the people I spoke with, that sense of impending danger that Butch Baden described, it never quite lifted. Kuhn's murder still haunts St. Tammany. Well, I mean, when you kill an assistant DA, it's like the bad guys won that one, and that bothers people. In the wake of Margaret's death, new unsolved murders in the parish would reignite interest in the case, attracting a new generation of professional and amateur investigators. Private eyes, law students, actor Steven Seagal, even the man who played 1980s icon McGruff the Crime Dog, they would all develop a wide array of theories. It was probably somebody from within the uh, Ocean family there. There was that Slido cop that was molesting the kids that Margaret was prosecuting. She said, I can't live next door to this man. She couldn't stand him. No one said, the deputies do not go to sleep. The DAs don't go to sleep until they bring the person or persons involved before me. There was none of that. And, and that was a big red flag for me. A big red flag. This crime took place a long time ago, but things have changed in St. Tammany. The good old boy network that ruled the parish for decades is crumbling. Margaret's former boss, Walter Reed, who served as DA for nearly 30 years, was sentenced to four years in prison on corruption charges. He tried on 19 corruption counts, including conspiracy, wire fraud, money laundering, and tax evasion. He was convicted on all but one. Multiple police chiefs, sheriff's deputies, even the parish coroner have all done jail time. Under pressure, Dr. Peter Galvin agreed to turn over thousands of documents. Galvin is under fire for the way his office spends public money. The longtime sheriff, Jack Strain, is now facing charges for aggravated rape of a juvenile. Charging Strain with four counts of aggravated rape, two counts of aggravated incest, sexual battery, and indecent behavior with a juvenile. All of this has prompted St. Tammany to re-examine its recent history. The fact that so many former power players proved to be corrupt has caused some to wonder if maybe they had something to do with Margaret's death. We turned over probably 25,000 pages of documentation of corruption in St. Tammany. And maybe the reason they haven't made an arrest in Margaret Coon's murder is because they're not looking at themselves. The new district attorney, Warren Montgomery, pledged to, quote, spend whatever resources and time necessary to solve Coon's murder. In response, the sheriff's office recently reopened the case and yet no one is assigned to it. It remains in limbo, open but inactive. That's where we come in. I wanted to know what was behind the local obsession with Margaret Kuhn. But the deeper I went, the stranger things became. Why, after 34 years, were so many cops reluctant to talk about details of the case? Turn that off for me. Turn that off, Lord. Listen, let, let me say this, turn everything off just sure, a minute. Sure, sure. Despite the supposed lack of motives, why did so many people seem to want Margaret Kuhn dead? I also wanted to know, what was it like to be her, a progressive female prosecutor in one of the most conservative districts in the South, a place that would come to incarcerate more people per capita than almost any other place on earth? I've made a lot of progress and developed my own theories. Over the course of this season, we're going to try to find out.
Who killed Margaret Kuhn? If you have tips or information that you'd like to share related to the unsolved murder of Margaret Kuhn or other relevant topics, you can call us at 650-746-GONE or email us at gonesouthpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a direction and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 company. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, along with John Liebman, Ken Lee, and Jared Shear. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman, with assistant editing by Molly Nugent. Research and production support by Ian Mont and Paige Heimson. Recording and engineering by Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, and Sean Cherry. And mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.